You're going to have to bear with me this morning. Let's make sure. All right, I'm on. Okay, good. And um, our text today will be verses 8 through 16. And here's the word of God. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, You might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly gracious Father, we once again come before you with our hearts humbled by your word, and we come today as your sheep, your children, and we seek to be fed. We are hungry, Lord, hungry for your word. And we want to hear from you today, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would illuminate your word to us and speak to our hearts. Teach us and instruct us in the ways of truth and righteousness. I pray, dear Lord, that that we would behold things today that that need to be um, taken to heart and that our minds would, would be correctable and that our hearts would be changed and that our wills would be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I pray, Father, that your spirit would anoint me, my, my lips, my mouth, my, my tongue, my heart, my mind would be touched by your spirit. You'd carry me along, overshadow me, and use me. O Lord, to speak forth thy word with power, conviction, and that we would all say amen by the end of this sermon knowing that we've heard from you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If there is one singular aspect or one skill that I could say is the most important skill that you should obtain in life, what do you think it would be? Some say, well, maybe cooking is important. We all need to eat. That's probably one of the most important skills I need to learn. Others may say, well, maybe, you know, you need to learn a particular skill to work and earn money, and this is very true. You, if you don't go to college, you really ought to learn a trade and have some skill or profession that will uh, be able to earn you a good salary in a competitive job market. Another good skill to have is the skill of uh, being able to relate to other people, and, and, and that 
is probably one of the primary skills. And that brings me to the single most important skill and aspect in life that is more important than anything. It is a skill that if you possess will greatly enhance your life, even with all the other skills that you possess or will destroy your life, no matter how talented and gifted you are. And that is the skill to communicate. The ability to speak to other people in a way that's compelling, that's charismatic, that's winsome, and that's gracious, and that's loving. The ability to win people with your attitude, with your approach, with your tone, enough cannot be said how important it is. More than just the words you say is how you say them. Your tone conveys your emotions and thoughts. Uh, Are you being passionate or proud? Are you being condescending or dismissive? The same phrase said in different ways can actually mean very different things. Perception is ultimate reality. So even if you say something that you truly believe is right, and you may be right and it may be true, the person may hear it completely different because they perceive it in a different way. And it's not your perception that matters as much as how other people perceive what you are saying. Because once they perceive you a certain way, no matter how good or right what you say is, their reality will come from a bad place. There have been many times in my life, and I can't tell you over the years, where I have had people, good people, who have spoken to me truthful things, who have tried to convince me of truthful things, but their approach was so bad, I completely dismissed them and never listened to them. On the other hand, there have been times I've tried to speak to people and communicate things that were true and that were right, and because it wasn't done in a proper tone and and I approached it in a bad way, I was completely dismissed. Suffice it to say, communication is essential. Laurel Thriven, the CEO of U.S. Cellular, told a story from early in his career when he was brought into a struggling organization to turn things around. He had lots of ideas, and he actually got the company back on track. However, shortly afterward, he was called before the top executives of the board, and expecting to be congratulated, he got the exact opposite. He was fired. Why? He turned the company around. It was prosperous. It was doing well. It's because people did not like him. It wasn't that he wasn't talented. It wasn't that he didn't do the right thing. It's that he didn't get his message across because his tone was bad and it alienated him from other people. As a result, he lost his position. My grandfather, who is not alive today, he died 20 years ago, had an old proverb he used to repeat to me often as a kid. He'd say, Bob... Just remember one thing, you will catch more bees with honey than you do with vinegar. And ever is that proverb correct. Sadly, it's one that I still need to learn, and I think that we often need to be reminded of these truths. In fact, the Bible speaks to this truth and this uh, reality as well. For instance, Proverbs 10.32, The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Or Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. It also tells us in 
Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Proverbs 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Again, as I said, it's not what you say that matters in terms of how much or how you say it and how you deliver it. Who knew this better than anyone than the Apostle Paul? He is writing a letter to Philemon, who we've been started this text last week. It's the shortest book in the Bible. It's a letter that is included in the Bible. It was a personal letter to Philemon, but it was also addressed publicly to the church because a personal matter in his, house, in his home was affecting the life of the church of Jesus Christ. Just to bring you back up to speed, what had taken place is that Onesimus, is the central figure here, uh, was at one time a slave, a bondservant of Philemon. Philemon must have been a wealthy man because he owned a house that was big enough to host the church. But furthermore, the fact that he had bondservants and slaves who, who were under his authority indicated this was a man who was not only a free man, but a wealthy man. Having said that, Onesimus at one point ran away from his master. He took off, and although it's hard to really pinpoint it, the indication is that he also stole some money along the way. He betrayed him uh, or did something wrong that caused Philemon to lose money, to, take, uh, to suffer a loss. Needless to say, Philemon is not a happy man with Onesimus. And in ancient Roman law, when, when a slave runs away and they are caught, the law requires that you are returned to your master or else you who harbor a fugitive slave can go to jail yourself and pay a fine to the slave owner. Now, of course, one of the questions that remains is why are we even dealing with this issue of slavery? Um, shouldn't Paul just say this is altogether wrong? And as we unfold this, we're going to see that this is really a, a, an understanding of the time that this is taking place in first century Rome. Let me make it clear, there was never a time in history where slavery is a good thing. It's always been a bad thing. But we've got to remember something. Up until 200 years ago, for the vast uh, uh, portion of human history, slavery undergirded the economy of every society, particularly in the ancient world. And it would take until the 1700s, where in Western society, England uh, uh, abolished slavery once and for all in the Western world, and it followed shortly after in other Western countries in America in the 19th century after the Civil War. But up until that point, slavery in all its various forms, and there were various forms, was an institution that existed and was just accepted. That was the way the world was. You, did, you didn't think that this was going to be overthrown or changed. However, there were some major differences of slavery in the ancient world as there was uh, in the colonial period in America. For instance, in the ancient world, it was very common that as a slave, you could save up enough money and you could purchase your freedom. So manumission was very possible, and many times slaves in the Roman Empire uh, did earn enough, and they were able to have freedom. They were able to go shopping and, and earn an income and, and buy things, and there was a, a great, vastly different approach to it than, than let's say, in, in colonial America or early American history in Western uh, slavery. Um, but nevertheless, it was a bad thing. People were treated as property, which uh, God never designed human beings to be treated as property of another human being. And furthermore, um, it, was, it, was, it was brutal and it was oppressive. 
Um, there, you know, there's never such thing as good slavery. People were beaten. People were treated horrifically in the ancient world. But in this case, we're assuming we're under the assumption that Philemon, because everything we've learned about him so far is that he's a loving man. He's a godly man. He's a good man. And by the one, by the way, that's what his name is. The name Philemon means the loving one. He is one who loves people. And and Paul already uh, uh, spoke very highly of Philemon's love, which is well known in the church. And it could very well be that he was a, a good master. And when Onesimus took off, it was a real offense and it really hurt him. But what happens is Onesimus gets saved. He becomes a Christian. He gets converted and we're, we're from the letter and from the text that we're seeing today, he got converted most likely into Paul's ministry and became a very close friend and associate with Paul. And so now... Paul has one goal, and that is to reconcile these two. Why? Not just because he's a runaway slave, but because they're brothers in Christ. There is a new status that Onesimus possesses. That is, he is a child of God. He is a citizen of the kingdom. And Philemon has to deal with this situation. There was an offense, and and the two parties need to reconcile, and they need to come to terms with each other. Paul is writing to Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus, to forgive him and welcome him back under different terms, not the terms that preexisted, but on the terms that they are both brothers in Christ. The nature of this is very sensitive. How you deal with people in difficult situations can be very complex. Basically, what Paul is doing is he's writing to someone who is dealing with a with a family matter, because a slave is considered a member of the family in the ancient world. And so him telling Philemon how to deal with this issue is like telling a parent how to deal with their kids. Right? When you as someone goes up to another parent and says, I think you should train your kids this way, how do parents usually respond? They don't like unsolicited advice on telling you how to raise their children. That's just the way things are, Right? And so you have to be very sensitive in how you deal with certain circumstances. This was a very sensitive matter. Not only that, but Paul was publicly uh, uh, declaring how to deal with this to the church through this letter. So in this letter, we're going to examine four principles of communication. And the first principle, moreover than anything, is humility. That's the first principle here. And that is that Paul doesn't appeal to Philemon from a point of power but from a point, a position of powerlessness. And I I brought out this point a little last week, but notice what he says in verse 8. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do as required. For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And so Paul wants to make clear, he he is not shrinking back. Paul is not a, a coward. He is not someone who's afraid to deal with the situation He's not afraid to grab the bull by the horns. And we know that Paul has done that. The 1 Corinthians 5 shows a, a clear a, a assertiveness of Paul's apostolic authority when the church of Corinth failed to excommunicate a man who was uh, uh, sleeping with his stepmother. Paul says, though I am not present, I hand this man over to Satan. I don't have to be there and I don't need your consent. I, Paul, put my apostolic authority and handing this This person over to Satan, this is not a Christian testimony, and you're wrong as a church for boasting in this. 
Paul is not someone who is, who is one to shrink back. At the same time, he's saying, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you, what he's saying is, I have the apostolic authority. I can give the command and tell you what to do, and you should do it, but I am not going to do that. I am going to come from a different position to you. Rather than commanding you what to do, I am going to appeal to you, Brother Philemon. I'm coming to you from a place of equality. And from that, and not only does he come from a place of equality, but he comes from a place of inferiority. He is in jail. He is in he is himself in shackles and chains. And there's really not much he could do from his jail cell, but he wants Philemon to be appealed to his heart. This isn't matter really simply of church authority, but it's a matter of Philemon's heart. He says, I want to do it this way for love's sake. Not only for love's sake, for the love of Philemon towards Onesimus, for the love of Onesimus towards Philemon, for the love of Paul towards all of them and for the church, but it was for the love of the sake of the community of believers. Love is the essential quality that binds the church of Jesus Christ. And everything we do is for love's sake. And so coming from a place of humility comes for love's sake. Not only is he a prisoner, but he refers to himself as an old man. Now, I don't think this is referencing his weakness as much, as much as he's reminding him, I'm appealing to you as an elder. The word uh, presbyteros, which is used there, which is where we get the word elder from, which is the biblical office, but also means someone who's an elder in the community, someone who's an older person. According to, uh, according to Philo, would, would describe a man between the ages of 50 and 56. So, hey, anybody here between the age of 50 and 56, you would be considered elderly in the first century. How's that? Paul would be ancient. So... Um, but in the, in the reality of this thing is that Paul is speaking as someone who's older. He's in his 50s. Philemon is probably in his 30s or early 40s saying, listen, I'm an older man. I'm in prison and I'm appealing to you. He wants to appeal to his heart and he's asking him as a friend. He's shepherding his heart and he wants to, he wants to point him in the direction of making a decision that will glorify God and promote love and unity in the church. You see, this should be a great lesson because when we deal with other people, it is so important that we likewise come from a place of humility. When we're dealing with conflict, when we're dealing with differences, when we're just dealing with uh, simple matters in life that, that could turn into conflict, it is so key and is so fundamental that we come from a place of humility. That we come from a place where rather than seeking to, uh, um, to exert our power over others, to intimidate others, to bully others, to twist people's arms, to manipulate and to strong arm people to do what we want, you may succeed in accomplishing your goal, but you'll build resentment and bitterness in those who comply with you. And that's precisely what Paul wants to avoid. Paul is approaching from a place of humility recognizing that he wants love to operate in the heart of Philemon to bring about this good work. The second thing we want to look at is, the, is that Paul is sensitive, verses 10 through 11. He says, I appeal. This is the second time he uses this word. I appeal to you for my child 
Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him, I'll leave it there for now. I'm just going to look at verses 10 and 11. He's, he's coming from a place of appeal. Twice he uses this word, and it's demonstrating the sensitivity of this issue. He's acknowledging and recognizing that this is not only the right approach, but it's Philemon's, it's Philemon's prerogative to make a decision on this matter, not Paul's. It was, a, it was a personal matter. However, there was a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do. Now, Paul wants to address what the right thing to do is, but he needs to address it in the right way, in the right tone, at the right time, with the right person. And so, therefore, he handles this situation by pointing to the work of God that was done in Onesimus. Now, clearly, Onesimus was a was someone who at one time did his master wrong and ran away and took off, but he found Christ. He, he came under the preaching of the gospel, and God converted him. And through that conversion, he becomes a, 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 one of Paul's uh, mission team associates. He, he becomes someone who is a, of great help to Paul. He serves him. He, he's ministering to him, and it could be a number of things. Now, remember, Paul's in prison. He's completely dependent on others to bring him food. He's completely on others, dependent on others to assist him. Paul is, is basically, um, without the goodwill of others around him, he would, he would languish in jail. Onesimus was one who probably, in his own uh, uh, heart, understood what it was to be enslaved and was joyful to help Paul in his imprisonment. And so they formed a bond. So close was their bond that Paul sees himself as a spiritual father to Onesimus. He says, Onesimus is like a child to me, and I'm like a father to him. And this demonstrates that in the Christian community at times that we can adopt Christian parents and we can adopt Christian children. They're not our children by blood. They're not our mothers and fathers by blood, but they become mothers and fathers to us. or People become children to us in the faith, in the spirit. And those are the kind of relationships that are developed that are, that are very rare, but they're close bonds. And so, although Paul is not here and he went downstairs, I would, I would agree that he would be like a spiritual father to me. Just like my father is a physical father, Paul would be like a spiritual father. And so you have a, a spiritual fathers and spiritual children in church. Paul refers to Timothy as his true child in the faith, 1 Timothy 1-2. Or Titus as his child in, 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 in the church in Titus 1.4. And sometimes these relationships um, are even more fruitful than even our biological relationships. Look at, look at me in um, uh, 1 John chapter 2. Because here John addresses this dynamic that takes place within the church. Look in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. And I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. 
And you have overcome the evil one. And so in the church, we have children, we have young men, we have mothers, we have fathers. And it demonstrates they're all different levels of maturity within the body of Christ. And we're to disciple one another. And so Anistimus has become like a child to Paul. So Paul says to me, I'm sending him back to you. He's like a son to me. I'm like a father to him. And I'm sending him back and he's my heart. He says later in the, in the chapter, he's my heart. He's my very essence. He's me. By sending him back to you, I'm sending me back to you. I'm close with him. I love him. He's dear to me. And he's also your brother in Christ. In fact, the word, and then he goes even further, he uses a word play with the name Onesimus. The name Onesimus means useful in ancient Greek. And he, what does he tell, uh, what does he say here to Philemon? He says, at one time he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful not only to you, but to me. He went from being useless to youthful. His name means useful, but clearly he didn't live up to his namesake. He became useless to Philemon, but now in Christ he is made useful. But, but it goes even further than that, the word play, because the word for useless in Greek is the word akrestos. And that sounds very similar to the word akristos, to be without Christ. So what he's saying is at one time he was without Christ, now he is with Christ. When he was without Christ, he was useless, and now with Christ, he is very useful. By the way, that's the same for all of us. The bottom line is, before you've come to Christ, we were all useless to God. We might be useful in the world for different varieties of things, but in God's sight, we are absolutely useless to him. There is nothing we bring to the table. There's nothing we offer God. God doesn't need us. God doesn't want us. God saves us strictly for his love, for his own glory and purpose. He takes us who are useless and makes us useful. God can take the most wretched of sinners, the most broken of people, and he puts them back together and makes them very useful in the kingdom of God. First, I mean, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 says this, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Pardon me. The imagery there is that in a master's house, there are vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. In the ancient world, if you, you had a vessel, a wineskin, that was a very useful, that was a very honorable vessel. Wine was, was a commodity, it was a good thing, and you wanted to have good leather wineskins to put your wine in so it didn't spoil. On the other hand, there were dishonorable, dishonorable vessels in the, in the household. Well, a commode is a uh, dishonorable vessel. You do not put good things in the but it has a purpose. It has a use. 
And that's the whole purpose. In the kingdom of God, there are some vessels that have good purposes and honorable purposes and some dishonorable purposes. And so the, the exhortation is that we cleanse ourselves of the filth and the corruption that we would not be dishonorable vessels, but honorable vessels that God can use us for every good work. We're vessels of mercy, vessels of grace. God works through us. I want you to think about that because God does not relate to humanity directly. He uses, he goes through his people through the body of Christ. And if you're in Christ, you are useful to the king. Paul is appealing to Philemon based on the transformation of Onesimus. By demonstrating how much Onesimus means to Paul and how he's a new creation in Christ, he's setting the stage for reconciliation and forgiveness. It's one thing if he asked him to receive him back and forgive him if he was unconverted and there was nothing good that he could say, but God had made a change in his life. He's a new creation in Christ. And he needs Onesimus to see that although he had been greatly offended and hurt by Onesimus, there is hope and there is, there is forgiveness. And just as Christ had forgiven him, and just as Christ at one time Philemon himself was useless to God, and he is useful, so he must show the same grace and extend the same mercy towards Onesimus. And so he was sensitive. The third point of communication is integrity. The third point is integrity. He says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Again, you see that. Paul's is how much he relates to him. And he says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be under compulsion, but of your own accord. Now I want you to think about this because Paul is actually getting rendered a good service from Onesimus. He's benefiting from the ministry of Onesimus. He could simply step back and say, you know what? I, Philemon is, might not even be good to him anymore, but he's very good to me. I like him. I'm going to keep him here. I'm not even going to tell Philemon about it. I'll just keep it to myself. Right? What, what, what does he need to know? He won't, he'll, ignorance is bliss. He'll be better off if he never knew that Onesimus was with me. After all, I'm receiving great benefit from this brother here. But see, that would be wrong. It would be dishonest and it would be a lack of integrity. Regardless of Philemon's intentions and motives, and Paul doesn't know that yet, but he's appealing to his heart in Christ. It is the right thing to do, not only for Onesimus to go back, but for there to be reconciliation. The two parties come together, see each other face to face. And if Onesimus does come back to Paul, it will be by Philemon's good grace. Certainly, that is the hope Paul has. The hope that Paul has is that Onesimus will go back. He will be forgiven. They will be reconciled. He will receive manumission. And that Philemon, out of the goodness of his heart, will embrace him and send him to Paul to continue to work for him. In fact, he says in the text, he says that he was working and serving Paul on Philemon's behalf. In other words, Philemon couldn't be there, but through Onesimus, Philemon was serving Paul. 
Now, I want you to think about this because there was great risk in doing this. Great risk. So I want you to see not only the love of Paul, but I want you to see the love and obedience of Onesimus, the faith of Onesimus. By Onesimus going back to Philemon, he was taking a big chance. Because in the ancient world, if you go get caught for running away as a slave, the penalties were severe. It could range anywhere from a beating, which, which would not be a simple slap or two, but a, you know, a whipping, which would, would render you probably crippled for a week. It could be being sent to the mines or the fields, which were the most grueling punishment. It could be being sold to a more brutal and cruel slave owner. Or in really horrible cases, they would put an iron collar on the slave. And on an inscription on there, it'd say, I, if you have found me, I am a runaway slave. Return me to my master. Philemon could lose it all by going back to Philemon. Did I say Philemon could lose it all? Onesimus could lose it all by going back to Philemon. The risk was that Philemon didn't have to act in good faith. He could have said, no, this is justice, and justice demands that you be punished. You ran away, and that's what you deserve, and he would have been within his right to do that. Well, Paul is putting his money on the fact that Philemon will live up to his namesake. Just as Onesimus became useful, Philemon would be a man of love and forgiveness and grace. Again, the question remains, why didn't he deal with the issue of slavery? And again, this is simply was the structure of ancient society. And I don't think anyone in the early church foresaw, could understand that this could be overthrown. In the reign of a tyrannical empire that ruled the world, you could barely have a vote for anything. There was no democracy. The idea of upending slavery was just impossible. It wasn't even on the table. However, we could see within this laid the groundwork and the seeds that slavery does not promote what God teaches. That slavery is a bad thing and that Philemon, if he is a a child of God, will free Onesimus of his own goodwill to the glory of God. So the bedrock is laid there that Christians of their own goodwill will do this for God's glory. Now, while, while he could have continued to retain Onesimus, I think it's important again, once again, to see that in his integrity, Paul wants nothing to do with it unless Philemon consents. He wants his blessing, and he wants him to do it by his own will. Brothers and sisters, let me just tell you this. Integrity is so important when we deal with each other. Being honest not trying to do things that when people are not looking, you get away with. I feel like oftentimes in our dealings with other people, we say the end justifies the means, right? Because I want to do something good, it doesn't matter how crooked or lack of integrity something has in getting there as long as I get there, right? It's the end that matters, not the means. Or often you hear the expression, it's better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. Have you ever heard that one? These are all worldly sayings. You need to act with integrity. 
Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Paul acted in integrity and he recognized and respected the, the, the conditions that existed and he had the right attitude. And I believe in the end, Philemon did the right thing. You see, it's important that Philemon would make the right decision And it would be of his own free will. Not simply out of duty, but out of love for Christ and love for his brothers. And fourthly, the fourth principle I want to bring out in communicating with others is the principle of God's sovereignty. The final thing Paul does here is appeal to the sovereignty of God. Listen to verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. How much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? What Paul is saying, he's like, listen, the purpose of God, God perhaps ordained for this to happen. Had Onesimus not run away, he would have never heard the gospel. If he never heard the gospel, he would have never been converted. If he never been converted, you wouldn't receive him back. And, if you, and this time you're receiving him back, not merely as a slave, but as a brother in the Lord. And he's my brother, and he's my son. Can't you see the sovereign hand of God in this? Although it seemed horrible that you had a slave run away, I'm telling you, God intended it for good. You see, a lot of times we can't make out why things go wrong in our lives. We can't make out why things go bad. But we have to remember something. There is a God we serve who is all-powerful and he's all-loving. And God ordains all things. He, He brings about all things and purposes all things for the good of those who love him. Called according to his purpose, he's working all things together for good. It's easy to say that and quote it theologically, but to apply it in your life when things are actually going upside down, that's true faith. And what he wants on his, what he wants Philemon to see is the bigger picture. It isn't just about you and what you lost, Philemon. This is not about you. This is about God's kingdom. And God is moving things and orchestrating things for his glory and for his good and for your good. And Onesimus is good. And you need to stop looking at things merely from the perspective of how it affects you. And so many times in our communication with others, we only look at things how it affects me. How it involves me. Well, I'm hurt. Well, I I was offended. Well, I was stolen from. Well, I was violated. The Bible says it's not about you. There are much bigger things at stake here. Paul would know of all people. He was the one who cast the first stone to put Stephen to death. But it was through that very event that began the chain uh, reaction that would bring Paul to conversion himself. If Paul didn't pursue the church with persecution, he would have never come to know the Lord. The Old Testament sheds light on this dynamic. No one understood better than Joseph, son of Jacob. He was betrayed by his brothers. First they wanted to murder him, then they throw him in a pit. He had no idea what they would do to him. And they sell him as a slave to Egypt. I mean, you can't get any worse than that. The violation, the betrayal, the 
the hurt, the pain, the loss. You cannot even fathom how awful what Joseph experienced was. Yet years later, years later when, when God had elevated him to a place of authority and power in Egypt and his brothers came there and they were, they were shocked to find out that Joseph of all people was now the, the viceroy of, of the pharaoh of Egypt. They, they come before him terrified of the consequences that will come to them. Listen to Genesis 45, 4 through 8. Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has has been in this land for these two years, and yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to keep you alive and give you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. If we could only see things that way, it's not you who sent me here, it's God who sent me here. Perhaps indeed Onesimus was part of you, not because he ran away, But God sent him away. And God had a purpose for that. I want you to see the big picture, Onesimus, to get out of yourself and see that God is sovereign over this universe. And he is sovereign over your life. And he is sovereign over the lives of the people around you. You know what what coming to the conclusion of God's sovereignty reminds us of? That you are not in control. And guess what? People don't like to know that they're not in control. Let me remind you that you are not in control. God is in control. And when we know that God is in control and we're not in control, it is easy to yield to the will of God. But when when we think we're in control, that we're all powerful, and that we are the ones who are dictating our fate, then it's that much easier to sin and violate God's word. Let me make it clear. Nothing happens in life by chance. There are no accidents. We serve a sovereign, loving God that ordains all events, both pleasant and unpleasant. And he wants Philemon to see there is providence here. And he wants Philemon to receive back Onesimus on this premise. Let me conclude. Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel, demonstrates to us someone who not only can address a very difficult subject, but do it with delicacy and wisdom, not just to force someone to do what he wants, but to get someone to do what's right for the right reasons. Good communication is speaking the right word at the right time in the right way to the right person. And when you do so, it will bear good fruit. He could have handled it much more differently and it could have went south. But I believe that this letter is contained in the Holy Scripture for a reason. I read this little poem that goes along with it. 
A careless word will kindle strife. A cruel word may wreck a life. A bitter word may smite and kill. A brutal word may do more still. A gracious word may smooth the way. A joyous word may brighten the day. A timely word will lessen the stress. A loving word will heal and bless. My brothers and sisters, I encourage you today, may this word help to shape us to be better communicators and that our words may be few, but that when they are spoken, they may be fit like apples in the ring of gold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time once again where we come under the ministry of your word. Help us, O Lord, help us to cleanse our lips. Just like you put the charcoal on Isaiah's lips and cleansed his lips, we need clean lips, O Lord. Clean lips that will speak the truth, but speak it in love. We pray that we would be gracious, that we would be wise, and that we would be thoughtful, humble, sensitive, courageous, and loving. We need to be good communicators, Lord, not only to each other, but to a dying world that doesn't know you, that needs to hear the gospel. Help us to communicate the gospel in a way that won't push people away from the kingdom, but win them to the kingdom. May all be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.